Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by independent scholar Conal MacEngasa. His MA thesis was on Thomond in the 15th and 16th centuries. His paper is entitled Thomond in a European Context, the Euvreen Dynasty, 1450 to 1580. I just thought I'd maybe I'd start you off all off with a nice little fact, which I know historians like facts. So one of the facts that I'd like to put in front of you is that there was never a Tudor monarch in Ireland. A Tudor monarch never ruled Ireland, though a number of them claimed to. And Queen Elizabeth died a number of weeks before uh, Hugh O'Neill actually submitted. So I often wonder why we use the term Tudor Ireland. So now, um, the title of the brief paper that I'm about to give, actually it's a, it's a truncated paper, so um, I, I would vary the, the, the title briefly to say that, that it should be Suinella, Perspectives on the Ivrian Dynasty in the 15th and 16th Centuries. And in the short time allotted, what I'd like to do is to outline briefly the characteristics of society and ideology in Thomond as a background to exploring a political narrative of the 15th and 16th centuries. So what was Thomond all about? Thomond was about dynasticism. Dynasticism was the dominant aspect of the ideological heritage of Thomond in the late 15th century, a dynasticism which was underpinned by a cultural ideology shared with the other Irish kingdoms and principalities. The shared cultural ideology facilitated and supported a disaggregation of sovereignty into a sophisticated hierarchy of autonomies, which ensured that the interdynastic rivalry was one of the main dynamics which informed the political outlook of the Ivrian kings of Poland and indeed Irish society as a whole. The continuity of this ideological and cultural heritage over centuries and millennia meant that its roots went very deep into the social and political consciousness. By the end of the 15th century, the Ivrian of Poland had been governing their kingdom for well over 600 years, and they traced a genealogical heritage with both their rivals and their subordinates, which reached into the mythical and prehistoric origins of Irish, Irish history. The conservative traditions, which were the mainstay of this culture, adapted only cautiously to change and innovation. Nonetheless, where change was inevitable, Thoman showed a remarkable capacity to temper its novelty, to assimilate it to its own perennial verities, and to reconcile the tensions between tradition and innovation. This ideological flexibility and capacity for assimilation and reconciliation is the key to understanding the continuity and longevity of Thoman's heritage and legacy and its ability to manage change. So what was kind of society was Thoman? Thoman was a lineage society. This meant that parentage, family connections and genealogy were a significant determinant of social status and mobility. It was also an aristocratic dynastic society where there were sharply defined and understood hierarchies of social class and status. As a result, it had political structures and relationships, a legal system and a social order which were strikingly different to those in England and most continental European countries. As a people and society, Thomond had retained, refined and adapted many of its political, social and cultural institutions over centuries and generations, adapting them to the challenges and changes it faced without drastically compromising their overall cohesion. The Kingdom of Thomond provided a protective canopy of mutual political relationships to each of the sub-kings or Uriha who came within its protection. This complex interplay of social and political structures meant that political control in Thomond was organised into Tuaha, 
unitary quasi-autonomous entities, each with its own vertical political power structures, each bearing tribute to the Ivrian as their overlord. As the scope and ambition of the Ivrian expanded, so the scope and complexity of the political relationships also expanded. The educated or learned classes, in contrast to other groups, had freedom of movement across political boundaries. Cultural cohesion, therefore, which was controlled horizontally by hereditary families, was critical to maintain the integrity of the political architecture. A key element of this cultural cohesion was the identification, nurturing, and constant reinforcement of mutual genealogical links between the key political <coughs> actors. The ideology of kingship and sovereignty in Thomond had its roots in the sacral kingship of earlier societies, which embodied sovereignty in the espousal of the king to the territory and kingship over people. It is a complex ideology, unfamiliar and alien to other Western modes of thought, which links people, monarch, and territory. The term Thomond, or Tuovun, as with other similar Irish terminology, is synonymous with both the people and the territory. This fully self-contained, self-referential and integrated pan-insular worldview, shared by all the Irish kingships, implied that allegiance and loyalty was held at two basic levels. Thomond was the political and dynastic patria, or focus of loyalty, whereas Ireland was the cultural and mythical patria. Within the meta-narrative of the history of Irish sovereignty, the territory of Ireland <coughs> is the stage on which the descendants of the Milesian invaders acted out their heroic quests for the esp- espousal of Bamba, personification of the sovereignty of Ireland. This ideology continues to have its historical reflexes down to modern times. Kingship was the ideological concept which evolved into the dynastic ideology of the later Middle Ages. Thomond had a system of governance based on hereditary kingship, and it was a highly stratified hierarchical society bound together by a cultural and legal system which controlled the succession system that in turn was based on the long-established principles of of seniority and suitability. The hierarchical aspects of society were balanced by mechanisms which sought to ensure dutiful behaviour and and equality. Regnal succession in Thomond was determined by, amongst other things, the balance of power between the competing factions or segments of the dynasty. And as Donoghue O'Hurain has remarked, Irish dynastic segments had permanent aims, but no permanent allies. The King of Thomond was chosen or elected by a select elite group known as the Derevinia, which was a group limit, limited to the three generational male relations of the incumbent king, as well as all males related to a previous Thomond king within three generations. In common with other European monarchies, the interregnum and the issues and social anxieties to which this gave rise was a key concern for a kingdom such as Thomond, and the office or role of Thalisha was one institutional response to managing the continuity of succession. The succession of kings had to conform to the ideological framework that placed a priority on seniority and suitability, which was synonymous with political power, which was arbitrated by a mixture of genealogy, clientship and physical or military power. The role of the historians, genealogists and other propagandists was to record and rationalise the legitimacy of the successor within the ideological framework. While the Ivrian were kings of Thomond, a number of key sub-dynasties ruled parts of Thomond uh, autonomously, bearing tribute to the Ivrian as their overlords. The leading dynasties of Thomond shared a common genealogy and ancestral origins, thereby ensuring that political loyalties were aligned with cultural values. The common link between all the Riha and Oriha of Thomond was the ability of the contemporary historians and genealogists 
to trace a common genealogy which linked them all to the Milesian origin myth. The foregoing are just some of the idiosyncratic characteristics of both Thomond and wider Irish society, and they explain in part not only how it functioned, but also why some outsiders appeared to find the culture so difficult to engage with and so difficult to control. Now, moving on to the, the uh, to apolitical narrative of the 15th and 16th centuries. From the assumption of power of Tygan Hoed O'Brien as king in 1459 until the death of Morhul in 1551, we see a sustained period of dynastic and internal political stability in Thomond, which coincided with a significant reorientation and realignment of the political alliances in Ireland and Europe. In this period, Thomond reasserted its dominance in the traditional north-south political framework within Ireland, challenged the dominance of the Anglo-Irish lordships to the east and responded to the emerging threat of English intrusion into Ireland by building alliances with the continental monarchs in France and Spain. The policy of appeasement, which was the English response to the Geraldine threat in the mid-1530s, counterbalanced and ultimately undermined the potential for collective action by the Irish kingdoms. The elaborate game of political shadowboxing engaged in by Thomond culminated in a series of agreements with the English in 1543, which were to have long-term consequences for the dynasty. In this concerted and drawn-out strategic realignment, we can observe the patterns of concerted and consistent corporatist thought, clear evidence of the power and influence of the Thomond establishment with the Derivina at its core. The agreements of 1543 can thus be seen as a logical outcome of a predetermined strategy. The objective of Thomond's external policy was to uphold its position of primacy in Irish politics and to maintain, maintain its autonomy. This had been the policy for a considerable period of time. The Thomond establishment saw Thomond's rightful role as a leading kingdom of the south of Ireland, or Letmoa, and a permanent candidate for the disputed kingship of Ireland. Translated into the real politique of the 16th century, this meant that Thomond consistently and pragmatically aligned itself with only the most powerful <coughs> of his peers, whether Anglo-Irish, Irish or English. Thomond carried out his external policy on at least two fronts, one to deal with the political culture of the Irish kingdoms and the other to deal with the interaction with the Anglo-Irish lordships. These policies were not mutually exclusive and there, were, there was in reality much overlap between the actions which flowed from them. At the highest level, there were issues and historic rivalries between the Irish kingdoms which informed their dialogue and their disputes. Thomond had a set of hierarchical relationships with each of the Irish kingdoms and their respective oriha. These relationships were set within a framework of a shared genealogical and cultural heritage. On the other hand, their relationships with the Anglo-Irish lordships, such as the Desmonds and the Ormonds, was of a more mundane and functional nature because they did not share a common genealogical and cultural heritage. Nonetheless, in each case, the imperative of the policy was to maximise the power, honour and glory of Thomond and to maximise its political leverage. The thrust and directional shifts of Thomond's external initiatives and alliances represent the distilled policy of the Thomond establishment. The policy positions of the late 15th century showed strong continuity and consistency with the historical positions built up in the Middle Ages. Within the multipolar political world of late medieval Ireland, the Ivrian of Thomond held sway in the southwest of the island from Loop Head to Barrow. 
a traditional South-North dialogue informed a political outlook that was dominated by the relationships with, the Irish and with its Irish and Gaelicized peers. Its political dialogue on a South-North axis was, was with the Burks of Clanricard, the Ecrohor of Connacht, and the Inail and Egonal of Ulster, and as is reflected in their marriage arrangements and the political encounters recalled in the annals. Until the 50, late 15th century, the marriage alliances of the kings of Thomond was predominantly retained within Thomond, and only later did they, ma- uh, did they marry outside the kingdom. The full marriage strategies of the Thomond dynasties await further analysis, as do the propaganda strategies of the compilers of the genealogies. The Pale and the Anglo-Irish lordships were a more peripheral concern. The dialogue of Thomond with the Desmond Geraldines was adversarial, particularly up to the execution of the 7th Earl of Desmond in 1468. As the Desmonds retreated from engagement with the English government, so the scope for developing political ties with Thomond expanded. Relations with Ormond were limited and localised, though during the last decades of the 15th century there was considerable scope to exploit Butler factionalism. When it came to exploring the scope for grand political alliances, the Ivrian had historically and instinctively looked northwards to the Enail, their Irish peers. Over the period of 90 years, from 1450 to 1543, the Thomond establishment transformed its traditional external policy from a south-north, all-island orientation to a west-east orientated strategy involving substantial engagement with political forces outside Ireland. They moved slowly and patiently, shifting the position, their position astutely to optimise political leverage. They manipulated alliances through other lordships, being careful to stay at one remove from open commitment, <coughs> a tactic which afforded valuable time and scope to manoeuvre di- diplomatically. Their external policy ranged from a flirtation with re-establishing Irish hegemony on an all-Ireland basis in the early 1460s with the collusion of the E-Nail, to resisting and challenging the political and military might of the Kildare Geraldines in the last decades of the 15th century and the first decades of the 16th century. Though dominant on the western seaboard and within the Irish political world, with the advent of the Kildare Geraldines in the second half of the 15th century and the rise to power of the Tudors in England, it became increasingly important for Poland to shift its perspective to accommodate a political dialogue with the East and to develop key strategic alignments that would secure its long-term future. The achievement of the Thoman political strategy of the early 16th century should not be allowed to mask the fact that there were robust internal debates and factional division within the establishment. The political achievement is all the more remarkable when we consider the difficulties of maintaining and managing internal political cohesion through the testing and turbulent 1530s. The agreements of 1543 were to be, in retrospect, a watershed in the political management of the Thomond dynasty, after which the factional strains began to break out into open conflict, which eroded the carefully managed consensus. The facts of the agreements of 1543 between the Ivrian leaders and the English king represented a convergence of objectives and a reconciliation of differences between both parties, at least in the short term. The form and declaration of the agreements were drafted to suit the exigencies of the situation, and clearly one of the intentions was that the solemnity of the agreements obviated the need to provide clarity and definition. This creative ambiguity allowed sufficient space for each party to reconcile itself to the compromises they perceived themselves to have endured. The ambiguity left by the interpretations of the agreements 
was one of the factors which were to provide sustenance to the detractors of the agreements and was to lead to the widespread increase in tensions within Poland and to subsequent outbreaks, outbreaks of internal conflict. The different expectations of the parties of what was a voluntary agreement and their widely differing perceptions of what each would and could deliver went to the heart of the ideological and cultural conflict which was unfolding on the island of Ireland. The implications of these differences began to show themselves fairly soon within Thomond, but were not to have their first of their most, most fundamental impacts until nearly a decade later. And so how did the dynasty respond to these emerging challenges? The agreements of 1543 were to be a political watershed for Thomond and its establishment elite. The cohesion so carefully developed, managed and held together for the previous 90 years began to disintegrate due to a range of differences over individual and dynastic interests. The implications of the agreements for the derivine, the effective political franchise, particularly in regard to the legal basis for succession, combined with differences over the general political and military strategy, as well as tensions over land appropriation and redistribution, meant that factions held in check for years and generations by prudent governance now broke out into open quarrelling. By securing the agreements with the English, Thoman had openly and effectively declared that the focus of its external political relations was now to support the English crown in its military efforts on the continent and to support political initiatives in Ireland that were consistent with the policy of the English Lord Deputy. During the remainder of Murrough O'Brien's reign as the first Earl of Thomond, these intentions were by and large adhered to, despite a backdrop, of, a backdrop of constitutional crisis in England during the minority of Edward VI and the Protectorate governments. While other Irish leaders, such as the Ecrohor of Offaly, continued in vain to attempt to secure political leverage in Scotland and France in the hope of engineering a continental intervention in Ireland, the leadership of Thomond became increasingly engrossed in its own internal corrosive succession struggles. The numerous factions soon polarised into two sharply opposing camps. These were centred on the two elder sons of Crohor O'Brien, the 57th King of Thomond, who represented re re respectively in broad terms the reforming and the conservative traditions within the Thomond establishment. Consumed by this increasingly bitter and corrosive struggle, the reputation, prestige and implicit latent political power of Thomond was eroded within a very short space of time of some ten years. In 1553, the conservative faction of Donald MacCrohor O'Brien overthrew the presumed new third Earl of Thomond, Crohor MacDonough O'Brien. The scale of the operation mounted by the English Crown to politically isolate Thomond following Donald's rise to power reflected their appreciation of and anxiety about the residual political potential not only of an autonomous Thomond, but of alliances between Thomond and other Irish and continental leaders. The overthrow and negotiated exile of Donal in 1558 by the Earl of Sussex, the English Lord Deputy, was the first active external intervention in Thomond in 100 years. It is clear that the terms of the political and philosophical debate that was occurring within the Thomond establishment over the merits of change were both broad and profound. The significance of this interve intervention by Sussex and its implications for the future not only of the dynasty, but of the whole social order, is succinctly reflected in the analytic accounts of Donald's overthrow. This is translated as, in consequence of this deed, that is the expulsion of Donald O'Brien, 
the Irish of noble Bonga were seized with horror, dread, fear, and apprehension of danger. And the descendants of Con, of Cahir, the descendants of Erwin and Aver, of Ear and Eith, were alarmed at this change. The net effect of the agreements of 1543 was to create a climate of uncertainty over the implications of change and how the benefits of this change were to be allocated. The principal issue which divided the factions was the issue of change itself. As the reforms implied by the agreements went to the core of the dynastic ideology and the concept of succession. Succession reform had implications for the legal system and the basis for land ownership, which in turn threatened the whole social fabric. The speed with, with which the factional Poland spiraled downwards into disarray reflects the intensity and polarizing effect of the debate in relation to the merits and long-term consequences of these agreements. And so in conclusion, it is very important to view the history of Thomond, as well as other Irish kingdoms, from within their own indigenous historical frameworks. The historiographical reluctance to examine fully the competing perspectives on sovereignty and legitimacy in Ireland in a wider European and universal cultural context inevitably allows a less than fully informed view to emerge that could imply that some competing perspectives had more legitimacy or even plausibility than others. Presenting the Thoman perspective on its own history brings to the fore the importance of understanding the contemporary weight and momentum of the contemporary social and political legacy that informed and underpinned the strength, power and prestige of Thoman within Ireland in the 16th century. This was a power and prestige which gave, gave it credibility and access to all the principal courts of Europe. By putting the Irish texts at the heart of the narrative, juxtaposed judiciously, judiciously with the responses from the English sources, we can discern clearly the strength and stability of Thoman and the Avian dynasty as a political power, politi particularly in the first half of the 16th century. Within the context of European politics of the mid-1600s, we can trace the steady hand of the Thoman establishment guiding the, its external policy until its carefully nurtured internal cohesion was stretched to breaking point by the strains wrought by the agreements of 1543. The fortunes of the Ivrian dynasty, the fortunes of the Ivrian dynasty in the period 1450 to 1580, reflect a particular and specific Irish dynastic history, which in turn illustrates the strength and tenacity of their ideology and cultural perspective, and the dynasty's ability to survive through protracted periods of change. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this HistoryHub.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the HistoryHub.ie website.